Hello and welcome to Cool for Cats with me, Amy Hughes. We're inviting you in for black coffee and a chat about our favorite band, Squeeze. In this episode, I'm welcoming Jim Drury. His book, Squeeze Song by Song, is the go-to for the backstory on nearly every Squeeze tune up to 2004. His in-depth interviews with Chris and Glenn provide crucial insight into their songwriting partnership. And it's just one heck of a story. Hello, Jim. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for asking me. It's, um, it's nice to be on this side of the microphone. Yeah, you. I'm going to preface by saying you've had a podcast called Fistful of Chords. And if I'm not mistaken, that's a Chris saying, correct? Uh, it is, yes. Yeah, it's um, ripped off. <laughs> now, they used to use it quite a lot, so I thought it was a nice um, a nice expression. Now, you've uh, told me before we started um, in our correspondence that you did it as a lockdown project and then sporadically through 2021. So what are your thoughts before we get into your book? What are your thoughts about reviving it? Um, is that something that you want to do? Um, I really enjoyed doing it. At the time, I was on furlough from work, so I had nothing else to do, which is why I had the idea of doing it, as a lot of people did in lockdown. And it kept me sane. Um, since then, I've got a really um, full-on job. So I've forgotten about it. But I would go back to it because I did enjoy it and I don't get to do things like that very often so I would go back to it I've just sort of forgotten about it but um you've reminded me about it I'm glad I picked it up again because I'd seen it and then kind of sort of some episodes disappeared and then I'm really happy that you got Simon on because I learned a lot I learned a lot about Simon, his um, he's very gregarious, <laughs> um, but his backstory on his family was quite sad. If we could, you know, touch point on that. But I was very happy yeah. that you got him like natural. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's. I mean, he's wonderful, Simon. He's such a such a huge character, and yeah, he was very open. I and I didn't. I'd known him through the band for a you know, long time and I didn't know that story about it, about his um, sister dying and, and until I thought when I asked him to do the podcast and he said yes I thought well I'll do a little bit of background research and I was astonished to find this story and, and it, it's such a tragic story um, for anyone who um, doesn't know his um, father and sister were killed in a light aircraft crash uh, when Simon was in a, was a teenager. Um, so, yeah, what a horrible thing to happen. Yeah, and he spoke very um, frankly about it, um, that he was it was just him and his mom that were, you know, left to sort of take on the responsibility of life. And it really, I was like, whoa, that's, that's a lot for a kid, teenager to take on. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I mean, he's he's got such a character. He's someone who can who seems to be able to deal with anything, and maybe that's part of that has come from such a tragedy. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, but um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's such it's a, an astonishing story. Yeah, I really, I thank you for giving us that personal side of of Simon because it really helped me to see a person you know and they've apparently been putting on a great show over there in the uk in the uh on the tour so um i'm really happy just wanted to you know say thank you so listeners go go and look up fistful of chords jim drury uh but let's start off let's start at the very beginning a very good place to start you um, fill me in on the timeline because you've done uh, two books in the in the essence of song by song. So the first one was with Hugh Cornwell of the Stranglers. Uh, that may not be a familiar name to the people here in the states, but for 
for the UK, Hue was like huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so how that came about, that was like a lot of things that have happened in my career, a huge fluke. Uh, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't a music journalist. I was a journalist. I, was, I've, I spent 20 odd years working at Reuters uh, for, for working on TV. And I'd done an interview with the Stranglers, who were my favourite band. I've got to say, sorry, folks. Um, Stranglers, <laughs> still my favourite band. Um, and I'd, I'd done this interview and I said, well, what could we do on with Hugh Cornwell? Because he'd left it and it was quite a nasty um, breakup and the, the two sides still now don't speak. And so I got his side and he, the week after I'd done the interview, his manager phoned me and said, oh, Hugh's looking for a journalist to, to write a book with about uh, every song in the Stranglers catalogue. Would you be interested? And I was like, well, he's the Pope Catholic. Uh, so I got to do that. And that was a fantastic experience. And then it led to the next book, which was Ian Dury and the Blockheads, which then led to squeeze and the, and the squeeze funnily enough the squeeze idea came i had a list of about five bands squeeze was on the list and before i opened my mouth at the meeting the executive commissioning editor said would you be interested in doing a book on squeeze we've got them signed up and i punched the air i thought that'd be brilliant i'd love to do a book on squeeze and it all happened very quickly from then on yeah it's interesting because um, there's two parts to this. One is this book is cited as an incredibly um, necessity. I can't say the word necessity for understanding where Chris and Glenn how how things evolved, and you were just able to not only make it an interview uh, and a question and answer, but you gave a lot of insightful um, background about their lives. However. This book is very hard to find. Yes. Um, I will admit that I did have to get it from, well, someplace, and was actually assigned a copy of that that Glenn Glenn Tilbrook signed. Oh, brilliant! So, um, so first off, let's talk about where this book is in the universe because it is yeah. very hard. To find it's because after the after the squeeze book, Sanctuary went into administration. Not because of the squeeze book, uh, but they went into administration. They'd they'd done some, they'd they'd taken on too many side projects, I think, and they went into administration. And the book went out of print, and it's very frustrating because we have looked into it a few times, and there was a window that no one knew about within six months of the company going under where you can take the rights back. But of course, no one told us that. So it belongs to uh, a publisher who who could republish it if they wanted to. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, you can only buy it online. Yes. Which yeah, is very no, annoying. It is. I mean, um, I mean, you can find a secondhand shop, I guess, but for all of those, you know, no, in today's world, that's how we have to find it is just go somewhere and, you know, hope it's available as a use. Cause I've seen some ridiculous prices. Some yeah. people want like a hundred dollars for it. That's us dollars. Um, and I'm sure it's I think, perfect. I think a lot of that is done by algorithm. Actually, someone told me this because the same thing happened with the Stranglers book where at one stage it was going up online for 320 pounds, which was absurd. And then a few Months later, it was then being sold for twenty five pounds, and I think somehow it's done. It's done by algorithm. So the squeeze book was for a long time you could buy it for a decent price, and the the year during the blockheads book because it had been uh, because it there'd been an encore series where there was a second version. You could buy that for a penny, <laughs> but now you can't because I think I bought up most of the ones for a penny. Right. You know, Jim's going to be outside of road saying, hey, you want this book on squeeze um, <laughs> out of the back of his truck? No, it's I mean, I'm very happy that a lot of people, uh, you know, know about it. 
uh, that's about all. <laughs> they know about this book, but it's, they, they say it's great. It's required reading. Um, yeah, it, so, is fr- it is frustrating, though, because you do have a this. Everyone has that kind of professional sort of ego and you go into it. It used to be quite nice. You go into a shop and you'd have a look and see if your books were there. And I haven't had that experience for 15 years because they're all out of print. Right. And I'm, I'm just putting it out there because for the people that I have conversations with, that book is just recommended very highly. So if you can find it, it would be amazing. I mean, at a reason, you know, reasonable price. So, but we're here to discuss it. <laughs> um, so, but let me go way back and ask you how you found out about Squeeze. Well, I mean, I was aware of them. So I'm 50. So when the, the, their first record came out, I would have been five or six. I wouldn't have known about them then. But I remember watching Top of the Pops, which was the big UK show here and seeing them on Top of the Pops. And then I saw them once when I was about 18 or 19. They played at my, my sister was the social secretary at a uh, college and they booked Squeeze. This would have been around the time of play and saw them play and they were amazing. In fact, I got assaulted by one of their roadies, uh, which is another story. Uh, But I then had a girlfriend at university around 1992-ish. She was a big Squeeze fan, and we went to see them two or three times together. Um, but I never quite got into them. I what I, I liked the records she played, but I was, I was very dogmatic about what I listened to in those days. So I had probably a couple of, of, of albums of theirs, but didn't really dip my toe in anymore. And then when the book came up, I, I was told the, the timeline was a ridiculously short amount of time to do it. Uh, and I was told you've got you'll meet if you if you if you're up for this you can you'll meet Glenn and Chris in two weeks time. So I immediately went out and bought the entire back catalogue. And within two weeks, I was like, "Why have I not been listening to this music before? It's amazing." I hadn't realized I really hadn't realized just how good they were. Uh, so I had to give myself a big education, and then somehow became enough of a. You know, you can, if you're a journalist, you can make yourself enough of an expert on something in a, quite a short time if you need to. So that's what happened. So by the time I met Glenn and Chris, I could talk as if I I, uh, I knew enough about them. Well, you did, absolutely. Because, I mean, this this book just goes everywhere. I mean, it's such a deep dive where there was nothing beforehand, before 2004, to be honest. It was just the songs. And... You know, journalists and magazines and newspapers and some of the odd TV stuff on both sides of the Atlantic would be able to get, you know, something out of Chris or Glenn. But it always seemed to be the same thing over and over. And I don't mean I don't mean the Lennon McCartney tag so much, but um, you really just took a shovel and you went for it, you know, if I can, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right analogy. I, love that. I really but... like that analogy. I think that's great. That's right. So I take that as a massive compliment. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so you've got this massively insane short of time. Yeah. Um, and let me also put a little caveat in here that there was no squeeze in the time that you woke up, yes. we were talking to them. So that must have been strange. Yeah, it was. And I, I and because I didn't, up until I did my, started doing the research, I didn't know that there had been any kind of um, friction. Um, but in some way, maybe that helped, actually. You know, their personalities were, were definitely shown through in their interviews, but as um, a commodity, squeeze just didn't happen at that time. So that must have been like very interesting for you to go and talk to them both. Did you actually, here's an interesting question some people have asked. Did you ever interview them together? No. And that that wasn't, the the main the main reason for that because it was such a time 
sensitive issue. Basically, I, I had 10 weeks to do the research and, and write it. So it was a, a very short amount of time. And Glenn was on the road with the fluffers. So it was a matter of necessity. I had to go on the, the, the tour bus with Glenn, which was great fun, as you can imagine, an amazing host. Um, so it was done by necessity, getting everyone's calendar together. It, and it, I think it meant that they could be quite open. There was It wasn't deliberately done that they wouldn't be in the same room. I mean, well, I met them first at Glenn's old studio, 45 RPM, and they both gave each other this massive hug and they were the first five minutes. They only had eyes for each other. It was really nice to see, actually. And they hadn't seen each other for quite a while. And then I had to sit down with them. I remember being having to be a little bit sort of schoolmaster and saying, I've got this really hard deadline that I've been given. Can you please make as much time for me as you can? And they couldn't have been any more accommodating. But it did mean that we would be we would I was. I'd do one day with Glenn and we'd do a couple of albums and then I might have to, they'll go over to Chris's flat. And it would mean that we could, I could say, well, Glenn said this and Chris said this. So there was, they were responding to each other. I read it again the other week before this interview. I thought I should read the book again. And I, and I think it does seem at some times like that, that they are answering each other. And I think that was because it was done in such a, quick amount of time that I could almost say well three days ago Glenn said this what do you think yeah that that's actually pretty interesting to think about the timeline for the actual interviews because it seems immediate um did 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 you expect that did you expect like that you'd have to be dredging um like when you did when you talked to each of them did you expect them to think like, hmm, you know, what went on? Or were they very um, eager to to discuss it? They were. They were incredibly honest. No one refused any any questions. There was. Uh, they were very respectful and very friendly and accommodating. And um. I mean, it came across quite quickly. I I felt, and I think maybe this is slightly in retrospect, I felt they would, they by doing the book, they would, they were ready to communicate better with each other, and I, and I think that probably came across in their in their interviews. Yeah, they speak, um, especially Chris, very um, glowingly about each other, um, which is very, I guess it doesn't happen a lot um, with the way that we know them and the way they interact um, and the way they write. Uh, they were very, can I use this word, effusive? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, what, what they, each one would say, well, no one uses a, a lyric like this, it's genius. Or Chris would say, Glenn's incredible, no one else could could write a guitar solo like that. And yeah, there was yeah, huge um respect for each other and and love. And uh, yeah, effusive is a very good word. Yeah, cuz I was um a little curious because Chris just really opened up his jugular um to discuss a lot of his hang-ups, um his his non-communication, especially during, um, correct me if I'm wrong, play yes. when they were out in Los Angeles with Tony Burr. Yeah. That that just seemed like a really bad time. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've read, I was reading that again the other week and I'd forgotten about how dark that, that era was. And Chris was, because Chris had just become a dad and they were, he was out with, a, he was just listening to a shortwave radio, listening to the Iraq war which was just starting and feeling really miserable and away from home uh, and not wanting, you know, wanting to be anywhere else but the studio. Whereas Glenn is always loves being in the studio and, and he's so upbeat. Uh, and yeah, they're very, and, and would pro I think probably couldn't understand why Chris didn't want to have that sort of, um, to, to have that sort of same level of enthusiasm at the time. Yeah, it seemed that 
Um, his alcoholic problems were really driving him down. Yeah. Um, and he just didn't want to be there. Yeah. It's, it's so nice to see how happy he is now. He's, um, he's eternally happy, Chris, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's his book again was also very candid. I love his book. I really like that book. Yeah. It was one of those things where I, I'd heard that he had been written and and I'm pretty sure there was no ghostwriter or anything. And I thought, oh, this could be really not very good because you sometimes see books that have been written without a writer. And I read it in two days and thought it was wonderful. I fell off my chair laughing at a couple of the, uh, a couple of anecdotes on there as well. And he comes across, he's, you can almost hear him saying it with a little wry smile on his face when you, when you read the page, it's a brilliant book. I actually got that from yours um, because there were such long descriptive passages about Chris uh, discussing this or that or like what he was doing at the time when he wrote his particular song. So I really um, liked that person. And that was back in 2004. So yeah. they were like just on the cusp of appreciating everything that had gone on before. So again, you jumped in there, had a really short time frame, um, which must have thrilled you. <laughs> well, actually, it was great. I, I like working like that. I do. If someone says you've got a year to do it, then it means that you end up people, you can end up leaving it till like the last month. And you wouldn't, I wouldn't have got the same level of cooperation probably because they're both busy guys but they knew and they it was they could have even they could have both been prima donnas and just said no you do it in our time frame they were they were nothing other than a delight to deal with and in terms of and Suzanne Hunt I can't thank enough for the way she managed to sort Glenn's diary out when it was happening because Glenn was really busy at that time uh, I think Chris was less busy. And I, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was how, how was the book conceived? If you, if, if you know what I mean, because yes, everybody would like to hear everything about squeeze, but who came up with the nucleus of this, of this project? You mean in terms of how it was sort of part written and part, conversation a little bit yeah and then approached um i guess obviously beforehand chris and glenn had to approve it yes so well the idea was the publisher had approached glenn and chris before i think chris had gone to them first of all with a prototype autobiography and they turned it down and they said but we have got this series of books where um we go through each song and that's a would you be interested in that and and then Glenn was brought in and I and, and this was all unbeknown to me before it happened to me so that the idea of it being a song by song was was came through the publishers and then but in terms of, I, I liked the idea of having a bit of kind of commentary around the edges at the beginning and the start of each chapter to have some context and then the songs would stand on their own in the, in the middle of that. It definitely helped because it was pretty, I'd say it was pretty much the first time I learned a lot about backstories that are in that time period, uh, any particular record or album. So, and also let me ask you, did you feel it was good that you didn't have, a big history like you weren't hanging on to favorite squeeze songs and did you feel like it was a more fresh approach listening to Chris and Glenn give the feedback I think it might have been actually I think because if if you're a big fan you can go in with not wanting to upset although then again I did I did do the book with Hugh Cornwall that was I, I think I was quite honest in that I think I, I do approach, I do have the journalistic approach, which is, you know, you've got to give it your best shot and don't let anyone down. So I, I 
I don't think I would have pulled any punches, but perhaps coming in with a with a not knowing all the songs back to front. I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether that made a difference or not. Actually, <laughs> I'm sort of umming it up, umming and ahhing as we speak. Right. I mean, yeah. You you framed a lot of it with uh, personal anecdotes. Oh, I like this part, or how do you feel about about what you wrote? Um, to any one of, you know, one or the other. Um, was there a personal song that kind of jumped out when Chris and Glenn said something about it? I mean, the song, every, it's such a cliche to say this. Um, and every, a lot of people say it. Some Fantastic Place is the one that I, I remember just, I think the first time I heard that, I cried, I think. Um, it's such a it's such an incredible song that you can um, it, you can sort of think about a particular person in your life who may have passed away. It's um, I mean I think about my dad when I hear that song, and it, you know, and it's about Glenn's first girlfriend. I think that's the the magic of that song is it's you can um, apply it to anyone you like. So that would be the the classic song that that jumps out. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Here's how it works. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Yeah, and I know that a lot of Squeeze people know the backstory about Maxine and that she had uh, contracted leukemia yes. and had passed away um, around that time period. I think it was just before. And it seemed like it weighed heavily on Chris. Yes. Um, more so than anyone uh well maybe that kate i think maybe chris expressed that more but i i well glenn i mean it was glenn's first love i think glenn was pretty crushed by it but uh, I, I think maybe it just i think chris maybe expressed that perhaps more in the interview i always liked the fact i, th I thought it was such a beautiful thing to do when, when chris gave him the lyric that he that glenn took a guitar a solo that he'd never used that he'd written when he was going out with Maxine and put that in the song I thought that that's that's first of all it's such a nice tribute and secondly that's a real Glenn thing to do to, to respond musically and find a musical hook to show his feeling yeah it's a beautiful song a lot of people have said that and I interviewed Glenn um back that time and he, on the phone, seemed melancholy. Um, he had also, I believe, his his wife, or they had divorced. I think it was his second wife. And the two kids and her were in Australia. Yes. And he expressed, let's see, um, not regret, but sadness, you know, sadness. That. Yeah, and and it's great now because the kids are grown up. Um, they're on tour <laughs> with yes. them now. Yeah. Um, let me let me ask you too. When you um, went through all the songs, chronological. Yeah, that was completely chronological. Uh, we tended to do two albums in a day. That's how we did it. Wow. Then, in fact, the last the last one I did with with Glenn was because we were really running out of time and he had a interview for BBC London and was going to do a solo gig that night. And I went to his house and then he drove across London to get to the interview. And I interviewed him while he was driving and we got, <laughs> we got lost because we weren't paying attention and we were late for the interview. And, uh, yeah. They weren't happy. I remember that. So it was partly my fault. You know, we were really, it was really up against it because he was about, I think he was about to go to America. I think like the next day. 
So it was like, if we don't do this now, it's not going to get done unless Sanctuary are going to fly me to America and they were never going to do that. Yeah, it seems like that's the way the land operates. <laughs> you know, everything is linked like, you know, get this gear and grab that hair and, you know, put this microphone in space. I got three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, it's a really nice way to be. I mean, you'll never grow old. And he'll, you know, Glenn will play, will be playing gigs, you know, to, for the rest of his life. I, th I think it's such a healthy attitude and it's a way to stay young. Yeah, he gets uh, that Paul McCartney thing going where, you know, he's not, he's not going to retire. You mm. know, it's just in his blood. Um, look what he did. Um, he just came back from America and went right on the stage in the UK. <laughs> yes. Um, so let's talk about some of your more memorable talks with them. Um, anything that you recall that jumps out? I remember one that jumps out immediately was at Chris's flat. He'd been talking about, he was talking about electric trains, about how it was about him as a boy who had, uh, he talks about a photograph of, him holding an ice cream in one hand and holding a toy in the other. And he said, that's the boy who wanted everything. He was an addict then. Uh, and I remember going in to use his toilet and that photograph was in the toilet. And I came back and said, that's the toilet. That's the photograph you were talking about. And I think he sort of hoped I would pick up on that. So that, that, that definitely um, strikes a bell. Yeah. It seemed like he was um, in a very reminiscent kind of mood uh, yes back then back, yeah you know in 2004 the funny thing about him even if even at times when he was talking about things that that made him kind of upset chris has got such a funny way of he's got such a wry wit that he will able will make you laugh because of something he says and he does it deliberately it's not it's not you're laughing inappropriately out of a sort of a tragic event he can still see another side to it and i mean that comes across in his writing yeah i think it does definitely because the descriptions that come off from the very last gig they did in 82 and that was the uh the jamaica festival oh yes yeah just are it's out there i mean everybody admits it sucked <laughs> yeah and that's and I don't know. It didn't seem didn't seem that hard from them, you know, to admit it. I mean, no, did I mean you, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, did they they were very honest? Yeah, and about and and about the second breakup as well, which was much closer in time. So it was probably been about five or six years before we did. That's in, uh, after um, that happened that we did the interview. So in some ways, it's easier to talk about something that's happened twenty years ago because it's less painful uh, I mean the domino the breakup after domino I think was probably a bit harder but they were very honest about that as well yeah there was and it's unfortunate that a lot of people have that attitude about domino that it just was really one in the tanker yeah I'm glad you were able to get them that that honestly admitted that this just didn't work well, it was interesting that that when we spoke about Domino, that was the only time when we were speaking about songs where either of them kind of clammed up a little bit because they had so little respect for some of the songs. They were just saying, I've got nothing to say about that. It's terrible. I'm like, <laughs> okay, could you just be a little bit more? No, it's just awful. I just don't like that. And it was the only time it ever happened. Um, so I, I, that tells you probably a lot about that, that record. What did uh, what did you think between the two of them they enjoyed the most about an album? Well, Glenn enjoys everything about it, doesn't he? I mean, Glenn enjoys the the going the challenge of going away and making the music, going in the studio, loves being in the studio. Chris didn't particularly like being in the studio, from what I remember. Uh, I think Chris liked just the you know the writing of the words, but was much less into the dynamics of going into a, to a studio or, or, or making the record at all I think from what I remember I mean, that might have changed now within the new in, in the new um, gestation of Squeeze. Yeah it seemed that 
he had a lot of mm, descriptive words about John Cale. <laughs> yeah, well, that's 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 an amazing story. That uh, about that first album. It's if that if you had, if that happened now, if you had a first album that you that you weren't happy with, that could sink you. They might, you it was still the days where you could get a five album record contract, and it, it wouldn't happen now. And, and and Call for Cats almost is their debut album in a way because they had to go. John Cale bullied them into writing all these weird songs, which you know they're still a good album, but it, there's a lot of stuff that you know, could, could go and write a song about a muscle man. I know it's like way off, way off um, the radar. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how to put it any other way. And, mean, it, and it and it seemed like they were in awe of John. Well, you um, would be. I mean, they were. I mean, Glenn was only twenty, wasn't he? Probably when that happened. I think I'd, I'd have say, been probably. Yeah. I'd probably been afraid of John Cale as well. <laughs> it's just so the tales um, that come up, you know, in every interview, and of course, you know, you had the pleasure of getting more <laughs> about John. I mean, the um, one about Amazing Grace is the classic. That, oh my! Can so, you can you please describe that <laughs> because it's pure. Gold. So they they were on. Uh, he was on. He turned up and had been drunk in the session, and they couldn't rouse him. So they put speakers next to his head, and they couldn't wake him up. Jules wrote something very rude on his head, which he didn't know about till the next day when he came in. So to punish them, he said, "I'm locking you in the studio, and you're all going to play a note perfect rendition of Amazing Grace, or I'm not letting you out." And on top of that, you're all going to play each other's instruments. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know, I don't know how they ever got out, but uh, yeah, I mean, what a thing. Imagine being a 20 year old and being, I'd have, I think I'd have phoned my mum. said, Mummy, there's this big man bullying me. Can you come and get me out? <laughs> I know. And they took it in stride. Mm. I mean, they just figured this guy. And again, they were doing. they were pretty. Um, they were kind of cheeky. Ch- you know, they, they were they were not. Um, I mean, they were sort of. Prob- they were probably above their years in age in some ways, even though they hadn't been out of London much. They were st- they were streetwise. Streetwise is the word I'm looking for, Amy. I don't know too much about John Cale, as far as his reputation. I get it from Squeeze. Yeah. And was there anything that Chris and Glenn said? I don't know, like off the record. No, they they were they said everything they wanted to say was in there. No, nothing was uh, said other than that. So, I th- or what I do remember is that they, I mean, Glenn was saying he was kind of glad that they'd gone through that experience and it made them learn another way of playing. So they made a positive out of that. Yeah, and then there, I mean, there's some good stuff on there. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. Take me, I'm yours. Yeah, which... well, of course, John Cow wasn't there for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, John wasn't there for that one. Uh, did Glenn, I was trying to remember, uh, did Glenn take hold of that? Yeah, Glenn and, um, oh, what was his name? The, um, oh, what's the guy? John Wood. Yeah. They did Take Me Home Yours and, and, and what was the other one they did? Bang Bang. Bang Bang, yeah. Bang Bang. Oh, yeah. That seems to fit those two together rather than these sort of hmm, sordid, Stories <laughs> that John made Chris yeah. write. He did a good job, though, in the with the lyrics. I think if, if you didn't know if you didn't know that subject matter, it's interesting because he did describe that with you um, in your in your podcast. Yeah, I remember he, has... he, he came up with a line. He said something like, "The only experience I'd had of dressing up in rubber was wearing <laughs> marigolds in the sink doing the washing up." It's a, which is right. a brilliant, it's a typical Chris Difford line. But you know what's what's interesting in reading Chris's book and then looking at what they discussed with you is that they, both of them, and the group as a whole, when they were very young, had a really rough, um, you know, younghood, so to speak. Yes, but yeah, I, I think they, from what I remember, it was it was one of those things where they look back and said, actually, yeah, it was rougher than probably we thought at the time, particularly Glenn. 
Yeah, because um, they talk about hanging out in gangs, and Deptford yeah. was in Fun City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Glenn was living with Pete Perrett from The Only Ones and all, all that stuff. That's quite a dark period. What's that one? Derelict, uh, you know, apartments or, or places. I guess until Maxine came into yes. picture. Yeah. In that respect, with something in the background, how did you go about assembling all all of that? I only decided that at the end. Once I had all the interviews together and I had all the transcripts, uh, my late father, bless him, had, had done. It was the days before you could get um, online. You could get transcriptions from playing uh, the, the audio into a computer. So he actually typed them all up, which is really nice because I wouldn't have had time to have to have got it done otherwise. And I went, so I printed them all off, worked out, and found bits that I thought worked better outside than the that worked better when we weren't talking about songs. And and it just sort of came, I thought, well, that's the way to do it. Do an introduction to each chapter and an ending, summing up. So that came, I think that came together at the end once I'd finished the interviews. How did you go about, um, did you conduct additional interviews? No, no, that was it. It was it was just done. Yeah, there was no more interviews after that. We didn't didn't go back and do any touching up. Okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it ver it's very descriptive, um, and it really helps to explain a lot of um, their mindset, um, the band's mindset. Uh, Chris, especially, um, where he goes into his darker periods, yeah. and uh, and you're wondering, you know, you're really feeling um, helpless, you know, when he talks about when he's where he's been and oh my gosh you know i went down the wrong way in a freeway and i don't yes. remember this and yeah. that's like scary stuff yeah yeah that's right that yeah and he didn't know how he got home as well i remember that anecdote because he he's in so much a sort of a better place now i kind of forget what how much darkness there was in the book actually there probably was quite a lot of darkness from chris in there I yeah, I just kind of forgotten that. Yeah, and it's just I wouldn't even say, you know, there's a demarcation line where that happens. You can just feel it mm. um, as you're progressing along the songs of any particular um, time period. Um, my my favorite album is is Frank. Oh, I love um, Frank. Yeah, yeah very this is like where things are at the opposite end of the spectrum where it's a great album uh, i'm glad they gave more to it in the streaming area now because you can hear like the um uh, like the, the b-sides and the outtakes and, and they fit great yeah um but they were so and you know you can describe this they were so mistreated um by their record la label Yes, I I, th I think there came a point eventually where Glenn just decided that that didn't interest him anymore, and I and I think that oh, that kind of freed him up completely once he discovered that actually, well, we don't need to be chasing chart success or what have you, and we can be, become more independent. And I think that, yeah, that sort of changed his attitude. But you're right. I mean, the, the production of the of Frank is a I think it's a lost classic. It's all—it's so hard to get hold of as a, you know, as a physical copy. Um, I remember it was—I think it was the one that I bought last because I couldn't find it, could find neither here nor hand of it anywhere. And it's yeah, it's, it's an absolute classic. Every song on there is brilliant, but they yeah, they were let down as they were probably on some fantastic place as well, which is my favorite album. Yeah, that's when um, there was so much richness to that to those songs so much maturity yeah um, in the in the uh, cadence of chris's words in the production yes that you wonder what happened i suppose they just didn't it happens to bands i suppose they don't fit anymore it, it they're off that kind of production line and you go through a, a phase of not being cool anymore now they're massive again but 
I think it, yeah, it does happen unless you're the Rolling Stones. You, 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 it does. It, you can produce your best work and and not have it heard by anyone. And it's it's a good thing that they kind of you know went through this mm, breakup around the time you were talking to them, um, and because the book kind of ends on a a downer. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It does it does because it, it says, oh, "Are they ever going to play together again?" Uh, they've done, produced all this great work. Uh, we should be grateful for that. And uh, again, that's it. <laughs> Over and out. Right, and it, and it and I felt like the book was uh, okay. Well, <laughs> done. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you did the book and it went out, what was the reception? Well. It didn't get a huge amount of publicity. It was reviewed reasonably well, but uh, the, I remember going doing sort of uh, events with fans, and the fans were really, really nice, and that was the important thing. So I, the fact that that fans were so pleasant about it and so and and talking through the things they liked about it, that you know, that gives you a lot of pleasure when you hear that. And what. Uh, what about Chris and Glenn? Well, they were. I remember sending them the. It, as I say, it was a really tight deadline. I sent them the. I think it was. Was it fifteen chapters? I sent them individually. I couldn't work out. It's a bit of a luddite then, and I couldn't work out how to send fifteen attachments. So I had to send them fifteen separate emails <laughs> with, each, <laughs> with each chapter on. And Chris phoned me the next day and said, "I read it through the night, and I loved it." And, uh, you know, that what can you imagine how I, that made me feel? It was wonderful to have someone of his stature say, I read, I stayed up all night and I read it until six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I loved it. And then I heard from Glenn, I think within about a week. And he and he, yeah, he was he, he was very happy. No, no one asked for anything to be taken out, which is quite unusual. That's, you know, that's a testament to the work that you did and the responses that that you got at the time oh that's well that's nice um yeah there were a couple of things i think i think i said do, do you not think we should take this out <laughs> i was and they were like no let's go with it and I thought, well, okay that's that's great they were i mean they were so open and i suppose we because i think it was in such a short time frame and i think they trusted me and uh so they didn't feel i was going to I was ever trying to take advantage. Yeah, I mean, there's, well, here's my question. Mm. Is that Keith Wilkinson, mm. uh, they seem to be very diplomatic about his work. Um, but do you have any personal insight? Well, I I remember Chris being a bit upset that he wanted all of his lyrics to be on the record, and I could kind of get that. Uh, whereas on a personal level, I think those songs of Keith are great, and uh, and he's actually got a really nice voice. The, yeah, the thing I remember is Chris quite openly saying, I didn't see what the point of having any of his lyrics in there. We had me and Glenn. <laughs> uh, I don't remember anything more than more than that, really. Yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a like an enigma, mm. um, you know, because I think the perception is that Squeeze is Chris and Glenn, yeah, and, uh, for a long time, but they came back and did uh, Cradle to the Grave. Oh yes, and that's a bit of anomaly for us in the states because I understand that they were approached because that's a um, television show in the yes. uk well, i know that the cradle to the grave was um the show that was based on danny baker who's a school friend of chris difford and a very well-known uh, broadcaster writer dj and that he'd had his his autobiography had been turned into this show which was a very funny show and i i would be guessing too much i think i know that some of the songs were I think were based on around the storyline, but I, I would be a bit out of my comfort zone to to guess. <laughs> right, because I I like it, but I didn't know if it's so British that 
we over here in the States kind of miss it a little oh, bit. Interesting. I mean, is, is the, does the phrase cradle to the grave exist in America? Because it's quite, a, yeah, it's a well-used one here. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, I think it also has the, the, the inference here about like the NHS looking after, the National Health Service looking after you from the, the cradle to the grave, which is why when Glenn did that fantastic embarrassment of our Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, on, do you know about this, about what he did? <laughs> I do. But let, let's have you talk about it. Yeah, so the, he, David Cameron, who was um, our Prime Minister, <clears throat> the first of many um, dud Conservative Prime Ministers, uh, was butchering the, the public services of the country. And he was on a breakfast, a prime um, breakfast show on BBC on a Sunday morning and was sitting on the sofa. He'd just been interviewed and they played Cradle to the Grave and Glenn changed couple of the lyrics to refer to the, the government messing up the National Health Service, which is a pretty brave thing to do on live television. And I heard that Mr. Cameron loved it. Yes, <laughs> it yeah, like it, right it, over his head. Exactly. And that's what we like about Glenn. You know, you, you kind of like sneak it in with a little, yeah. little sugar. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I really like about uh, the new the Squeeze Mark Three is well, I've always liked songs that have a bit of a sort of a political edge and that's that was never really in their repertoire before the last two albums and I, I think Glenn has become quite outspoken um, and political and I think that's I think that's a really nice strand to their to their work and you would also maybe speak to the fact that during the time you were speaking to them and Glenn was doing solo stuff. He's actually writing lyrics. So how did that discussion start to formulate? About the, the division between uh, the, their writing, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think from what I remember, it was that Glenn uh, was writing lyrics himself as a teenager. And then when he started receiving Chris's lyrics, thought, actually, these are better than mine. So I'll just write music to those. And that, it was one of those things where they never kind of spoke about it. It was just decided that Chris would write the lyrics and Glenn would write the music, but no no one ever seemed to, to speak of it. It was just assumed that each other knew that telepathically. And of course, now that Glenn uh, went away during the period when Squeeze were no longer, wrote these a couple of really good solo albums and, and thought, well, actually, I can contribute just as well, you know, myself. And I think that, yeah, and you can kind of tell which which are the songs that, that he's written because they have that immediate political side, which, which Chris has much less of. Yeah, and the bite of their resurgence, especially with the band that they have now. And I understand that Simon... Um, and Steve and Steve and Melvin. I mean, there's a background, except for Owen, Owen Biddle, who's their um, new bassist. Yes. But everybody is really pouring it on. Um, yes. And it's, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Like you said, it's great to see Chris bright, um, you know, and it hasn't been like that in a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my point of view. Yes. I didn't know if you had been... I, what I do remember is that that Steve and Simon were just, apart from being fantastic musicians, they're also both very nice and great characters. And I think Simon is the kind of person you want to have in a band because he's got this sort of comedic, uh, easygoing person who's like a glue who would fit... Who, who you'd, you don't want to have someone who's being negative. I don't think I've ever seen him there. He's just this ball of energy who tells jokes and, and is funny all the time. And I th that probably helps a great deal, I would think. You know, the one thing I wanted to touch on was, um, you know, your podcast, A Fistful of Chords, where you basically got back in touch with Chris. Yes. So how did that how did that all come about? I know I, know I understand you've told me that it was a lockdown project. Yeah. So how did you approach that? How did you approach well, Chris? I, thought I'd, I mean, I don't know that many people 
in the music industry, really. Um, and I thought, well, I'd love to do one with Chris. And I felt, I was at a bit of a low ebb myself at this point. I think a lot of us were at the beginning of the pandemic. But I'd had, I'd left what was, oh, I, had a, I had a really great job at Reuters, which I'd left to take on a new challenge that didn't work out, really. And after a year, it had been very difficult. And then I got put on furlough. And so I was feeling quite low. And I thought, well, I've, I've got to do something to get through the days. And I did. So I set up the podcast, did one with a friend of mine who was in um, All About Eve and um, Sisters of Mercy. And I tried a couple of other people I knew. First person who I won't mention, uh, who was not in Squeeze, um, who said no, which I was really surprised at. And I went to Chris and Chris said yes immediately. I think I sent him a text message and said, would you? Would you come on my podcast? And he wrote back and said, "Yes, I'd love to." And that gave me such a lift at the beginning of lockdown. I can't tell you. And he, he it was just so kind of him to do it. Um, and it was like being back in the room after a week before. It was really easy going. Uh, and he, in fact, I've done a couple of other interviews with him since then. Or well, one I set up with with Wilco Johnson uh, on another podcast, but. Chris was just very generous with his time and uh, yeah, as I say, so I mean, I, if, if he listens to this, I, I just tell him how much that meant to me at the time. Yes, I have. I think you will. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure of it <laughs> because you've given us uh, a service, you know, that for nobody else has um, to be able to condense it into this readable, enjoyable I keep using the word descriptive. It's just, it's just immersive. <laughs> and I wanted to find out, have you managed to see them recently as a band um, in the last like year or two? I've, I haven't seen them since the pandemic started. Last time I saw them was, um, I think, Christmas 2019. I should really ought to go this time around. I've stopped. I've just stopped going to gigs. <laughs> That's basically it. I mean, I'm also. I mean, I'm in a band, so my for me to get a sort of a night pass away from home, it's like, well, is it going to be a going to a gig or is it going to be rehearsing? Uh, so I'm indulging myself that way. But I really ought to go and and uh, see them. Well, you said something about being in a band. Yeah, um, it's my midlife can you, crisis. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, it's my midlife crisis. Is um, some guys I was at university with thirty years ago. We we I'd met up with them, and they'd said, "Oh, it was we we've got a band together, but we haven't got a singer. It's going to be great." And I had had a few drinks. I've never sung before in my life, and said, "Oh, do it." <laughs> And so the next day, got a call saying, "Right, rehearsals next week." And I thought, "Well, I've said I'm going to do it. I don't. I really hate it when people say they'll do something and don't." So I went along and said, "If you don't like it, fine. If you do like it, it'll be. Let's do it." And I, I went along, and it was such a buzz. And we we do we started off mainly doing covers. Uh, we've got five or six songs of our own um, that we've recorded, but it's it's you know. It's, dad rock isn't it i mean it's just 50 year old men pretending they're they're not 50 anymore i just wish we'd done it 30 years ago really i'd never done anything like that before but you're doing it now i mean and that's a good thing you know yeah it's fun it's a great laugh you know better to get in now than when you're like 80 <laughs> it's great i love it so i just want to say there's not enough different ways to can I can say thank you um, to the work that you put in, especially in the time frame you had, which is new to me, because the way that you construct the book, the way that you get the answers and the information from Chris and Glenn just pours out so natural, just natural as far as their answer. So I just have to say two words thank you oh that's that's very kind of you to say what i would say is that they were definitely ready to have that kind of uh conversation at the time um they it was clear that they were ready to 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 talk about that stuff 
but you know, I, um, so if I helped in any way, that's that's nice. 